By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Beautiful. Acts seven seventeen to 29. <clears throat> but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. But this man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born, was well-pleasing to God, and brought up in his father's house three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in wisdom of Egypt, Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended avenging, and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would understand that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he did not... But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptians yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Maiden, where he had two sons. Beautiful. Give me a hand. Thank you, both. Thank you. If you've been to those two places, keep them marked. I want to pray and I want to start there before we even get into our text. And then before we get into our text, and we'll see if we get to our text, and I assume we will, we'll not only take a look at these two texts for a moment and explain them, but also we'll take a look at a few of the texts in Genesis, working our way up to the spot in Exodus to where we are. But would you pray with me and stand while we pray? Why don't we just one more time? I'm just in that sort of let's sit down, stand. You know, some of those churches, you stand, sit, kneel half the time, so this is just unexpected aerobics. All right, here we go. Lord, we just pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you administer profoundly. God, we come to you, Lord, as people that have nothing good to bring in and of ourselves except one thing, and that is surrender. And that's the only thing you're looking for. In our surrender is a love that would love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we are in desperate need today for your power. Not an it, but a him, a who, you. So we want to engage you. We want to enjoy you. We want your word to minister. We've not just come here to be consumers, but we've come here, Lord, to be used. But we don't want to serve from our own strength. We want to serve from the overflow. So God, first fill us that in in us, all of the filth and the muck and the world and the nastiness that would be so prevalent in our own lives, that we battle every step we take in this world around us, would be completely eradicated and purified from us. And then, God, in that, as you complete that and you just fill us 
then to overflowing shower out of us that, Lord, which blesses each other, is first you minister to us, and then you minister through us. I want to be able to say, as Paul, that which I first received, that I give you. Thank you for the time you've given me, Lord, to be able to sit with you and enjoy you and nestle into your arms, sometimes in the middle of the night, and just to say, God, thank you. So, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, minister now. Let your word burst open and come alive. Lord, may we be so overwhelmed with your goodness. May we be so challenged, Lord, that we don't just get a good exhortation, Lord, but your Holy Spirit so locks it in and confirms it in our hearts that actually our, our lives change as a result of it. And in that, Lord, I just want to commit to you this and ask that you redeem every second, Lord. I trust, Lord, that no matter how short or long this message will be, it will be your words, not mine. So take my lips and attach them to your heart. And in doing that, Lord, have your way. To you be the glory, honor, praise. And Lord, I just thank you. Save, challenge, equip, exhort, rebuke, rebuff, do whatever is necessary to us today to make us more like you. So I commit this to you and I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. I would say today, as I would any, please don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Okay, first of all, go to that Acts, 11 pa- Acts 7 passage, by the way. Here's a general context. Is it cold, Landon? Okay, good actually for the moment, because it'll heat up quickly. So. In our Acts 7 passage, there's a young man named Stephen. We read, by the way, he's full of the Holy Spirit and with power and wisdom. He is a man, by the way, who was hired, or I should say raised up from among the fellowship of believers, the commune of believers in Jerusalem, to tend to, wait to widows who were actually not traditionally Hebrew in their practices, but Hebrew by bloodline. They were contemporary by their practices, but Jewish by blood. And in that, this man, though in a particular position that would seem seemingly insignificant and mundane, was raised up to a place, to be honest, through his, well, to be honest, through his faithful service, to where there was a great deal of opposition by a group of guys who were much more liberal in their Jewish approach, and of course, of course Stephen was Christian. Now, when a person is called to question in regards to their Jewishness, they have a tendency, at least tradition, of giving a thing called a pedashah. Would you say pedashah? Now, what a parasha is, is a declaration. In other words, what do you know about your Jewishness? And really, what you find is, is that they give the history of Israel as they understand it. And that allows sort of the religious leaders to see whether or not. Now, imagine it's sort of like if you were called to question, if you were American, and they were called to question whether you were American, and they asked, tell us the American history. When did America become America and blah, blah, blah. That would be kind of the idea. And you'll find that happen throughout the New Testament on several occasions. Paul will do it. Peter will do it. And you'll see these different individuals. And, of course, here Stephen does it. But in these particular uh, recounted histories of Israel, we get some really good information about the text we're about to jump into in Exodus 2. So this is after the fact, looking back. And in Exodus, I'm sorry, in Acts 7, it says this again. But the time of the promise drew near. Stop. Notice that. And that's what we're going to get right before we get into our text. That God had laid out several times in the book of Genesis these promises, which, by the way, will be the fundamental aspect of what it's going to take for us to be the person God calls us to be, like in Exodus 2. There was a promise that it was time to come near. 
And when that had happened, that which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt. That was part of the promise, by the way. Till another king arose who did not know Joseph, and this man dealt treacherously with our people and, appro- and, appro- I'm sorry, and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies that they may not live, which was, if you remember, right where we were at the end of the last chapter. At this time, Moses was born, was well-pleasing to God, and was brought up in his father's house for three months. That's what we'll see in our text. And when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. Moses was, now notice verse 22. Notice that verse. Key, because that's the only place where you're going to get this information. One of the reasons to give this. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and in deeds. In other words, you know, when we read later on that God and and Moses are going to have a little argument. And of course, by the way, if you're going to argue with God, do you ever really think you're going to win? And do you really think that there's something you can do that's going to intellectually put God at checkmate? Well, in this situation, remember how Moses argues he was slow of speech. Now, it's clear that Moses is a bit eloquent. As a matter of fact, the first worship song is going to be written by Moses. Unless it's a bit of a stuttered rap, it's a pretty good possibility Moses was fairly eloquent. But might I just say perhaps the argument is because Moses was raised in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians. Perhaps he was just, I mean, let's say it this way. You were born in England. And as you were born in England, let's just say you were here for, you know, however long, until you were only three, four years old. And then you were sent off to France. And you have spent now the last 39, and 30, well, I should say 36 years in France. And God says, I'm calling you back to England to go and say to the people of, of England, people, but you haven't spoken English in 36 years. You kind of get the idea. And the reason I just say that is when he's saying, you know, I'm, I'm a slow of speech, it may just be like, you know what? And again, I'm just kind of, I'm not giving him an excuse, but it's like, you know, hey, I haven't really spoke that language in a really long time. And God says, well, let, let me just remind you something. Who made your mouth? If I made your mouth, don't you think I can use it the way I want to use it? And it'll be one of the promises we'll see. So anyways, he was learned on all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Verse 20, or 23, another key fact we'll get only from this text. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, which, by the way, appears to be that Moses was aware that he was Hebrew from the beginning. And and I don't want to get crude about it, but there's a specific thing that you do to a boy that's Jewish that kind of makes it really clear that you're Jewish. So um, anyways, with all of that said, at 40 years old, he goes to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. Seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that the brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. Now, the key in regards to this is, is of course, the theme ultimately in Stephen's text is, you guys have been denying your deliverers from the beginning. Why should it surprise me you denied Jesus as well? He was the ultimate deliverer. I sh- you should have saw it coming. That's kind of Stephen's message. Did you get that? Now, forgive me for bouncing around if you have to, but in a, we just got a couple key things. One of them was that Moses was how old again when he went to visit his brothers? He was 40. Excellent. And as he was 40... He went out to visit them. He saw one of them suffer wrong, and he killed the guy. He killed the Egyptian. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever realized this. Moses must have been a tough cat, which, by the way, doesn't seem to be typically Egyptian. Do you remember the two um, housemaids, the two um, nurses? You know, the, um, uh, why can't I think of the word? That um, helps. 
Midwives, thank you, for the midwives. They said, you know, that those Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptians. Those Egyptians are so posh, they just need everything. I mean, they just, you know, before, but the, when the contractions happen, just give me drugs. And on the other side of it, and I'm not going to want to pick on you if that's you. Um, on the other side of it, you know, it's like these, these Hebrew gals, they're like bowling and the baby comes out and they just make sure they have the baby in the right hand before they roll the ball. I mean, it's just, it's so, and the reason I said that, it's like the women were tough, but the Egyptians seem to be kind of, the, you know, the more like, oh, don't touch me, I think that might hurt. And the reason I said that is most Moses was raised for how many years, though, it seems like, in the Egyptian ways? Forty. It seems like he was raised for that first forty in that. But he was a tough cat. And let me tell you why. Because a slave master tends not to be a little guy, and he's armed. He's got a whip, a cat of nine tails or sixteen tails in his hand, usually about you know a meter long, and he's whipping people to keep them going. We don't, I mean, this guy, Moses, is a son of, uh, adopted son of this, um, of the Pharaoh's daughter, who doesn't seem to have any weapons on him. And Moses goes up to a guy who is big and armed and kills him with his bare hands. That tells you a little bit about Moses. We always kind of see Moses as kind of the average-looking guy, but there's something about him. And then later on, there's a whole flock of shepherds, and he chases them all away. And I think, man, don't mess with Mo. You know? Okay, now... Keep your finger in Hebrews 11. And isn't it just beautiful how the entire book comes together? Now, keep your finger in chapter 11 because it's the crux of our message. But by the way, go back to Genesis 12. So if you have one of those apps, God bless you. (laughs) Bookmark it, I guess. Um, And I'm not trying to pick on those of you who are technologically advanced. Okay, maybe I am. Okay, Genesis 12. Verse 2, God spoke to Abram before he was Abraham. And in Acts 12, verse 2, God said this, I will make you a great nation. That's fundamental. He was a man who was over 75 or 75, appearingly. He was married, but a little beyond the days of having children. God said, an entire nation is going to come from you. Chapter 13, verse 16, flipping over. Because that wasn't enough to give him the promise once. Let's develop it. 13, 16, God now says to him, by the way, at this point, it will be when Moses and Lot part. I'm sorry, Moses, when Abram and Lot part. And he says, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, so your descendants also could be numbered. Okay, that gives you an idea. This isn't going to be a tiny nation. It isn't like God's like, I'm going to make you Luxembourg, with all due respect to Luxembourg. Chapter 14, he is blessed by this um, Melchizedek, who happens to be the only king and priest before Jesus. And then in chapter 15, verse 5, God re-edifies it one more time and says, look toward heaven. Go ahead and get there. Acts 15, I'm sorry, Genesis 15, 5. Look toward heaven. And count the stars, if you were able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. So your descendants will be like dust, will be like stars. Ask a scientist how many stars there are. And they'll say, there are, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, are you absolutely sure? And they're like, well, that's our best estimate. Because you can't get out there and count them all. That's the idea. In Acts 15, verse 13, God says this. Know that certainly your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs. They will serve them. They will afflict them for 400 years. 
And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Notice that. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. God promises that will be in the fourth generation. Now, this is what God said to Abram in Acts 15. You're in the land that I've promised you, but it's not time to take it. There will be soon. But first, you're going to go to a land that's, that you don't belong in right now. You're going to multiply exceedingly, innumerably. And that's going to bother someone. And when it bothers them, they're going to put you under forced labor for four centuries. After that time, that nation, I'm going to judge. Which, by the way, when God judges something, it's not pretty. And then you're going to leave. You're going to leave the land you don't belong in. You'll be in it, but not of it. No matter how long you stay there, you will never be an official citizen of that land. Get over it. Stop being a citizen in a place you're not. That's not your permanent address. And I'm going to take you out and I'm going to judge that place. That place, in other words, it will have its time appearingly superior over you, but that time has a shelf life, an expiration date, and when that expiration date hits, it's over. Did you get that? And then I'm taking you out and you're going to come out rich. Now, that's a promise that gets handed down. Abram to Isaac, Isaac to Jacob, Jacob, I'm sorry, and then Jacob to his son, Joseph, who will be the one who will go into Israel, and then the rest of the family will come. Chapter 1 of Exodus, there are 70 people. That's what we start with, is 70 Jewish people. That's a single family that now has erupted to a place where they can't be counted. And again, the ludicrousy of this concept that the Pharaoh that rose up that now doesn't know Joseph looks and says they're more and they're mightier than us, so let's bully them. And I don't get that how you could be smaller and less and still think you can bully another group of people, except that the people that are being bullied have no concept how strong they really are. But there's a promise. And that promise has been sitting there for over 400 years. Do you get me on that? And after the 400 years, somewhere down the line, that generation gets born. And if you know that promise, and you look and you go, okay, If God were to say, everyone born after 1990, that generation is going to deliver England. And then my children are born. And I look at that and I think, well, well, one of them. Well, actually, anyways, both of them. And, and And I look, I have to do the math on that one. And all of a sudden I look and I look at that face and I go, you're that generation. And if I know that promise, imagine what I would see when I look at that child. Do you get that? Should it surprise me at a time like that that the enemy, this Pharaoh who doesn't know this promise and doesn't know the deliverer Joseph would want to wipe out that generation? Because he doesn't want to see this country saved the same way that he doesn't want to see that the enemy didn't want to see Egypt, or I should say the Israelites delivered out of Egypt. And I'm looking and I would think, Shantae, Ruthie, you're that generation. How many of you have been born after 1990? Now, I'm not telling you that's a prophecy, but how many of you were born after 1990? Raise your hand. That's a few of you, see? And I'd say, oh, Micah, really? See, look at that. I mean, imagine looking and going, it's you guys. And I'm looking and going, that's, it's you guys. You imagine, and if I were that parent, I would look at, could you imagine that promise sitting upon my heart? Going, man, we've been slaves for 400 years. It's all we've known. It's all that our history books recount in recent history. Everything beyond that seems like a fairy tale. 
And now this comes? Now go back to that text in Hebrews 11. And we just might get to our text. Now listen. Hebrews 11 is a chapter. If you get one of those places to memorize a chapter, that's a beautiful chapter to memorize. It is somewhat called the Hall of Faith. Because the idea is simple. It recounts the stories of different individuals and what they've done in that act of faith that actually, in essence, God says, this is, how they, this is why they made it into the Bible. And in Acts chapter 11, the one guy who gets the most press happens to be Moses. And it says in Acts 11.23, and there's a couple key things I want you to see because God's going to call, I, I, I genuinely believe, not just those born 1990 year old or, or later, I believe every one of you that God wants to use you in ways so far beyond yourself that it would make you giggle in disbelief if he really showed you everything. I really believe that. It says Acts 11.23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. We kind of got that in the other as well. Because they saw he was a beautiful child. Now, good thing he wasn't ugly, I guess. And they were not afraid of the king's command. Hebrews 11. Do I do that? Thank you. That's why. Acts 11.23. Sorry. And that's the hall of faith. Acts 11 is not. So, Hebrews 23. Did I do it again? Hebrews 11. Are you going to edit this? All right. <laughs> do you know it does say that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? Yeah, see? I'm just helping you out with that. You think, I couldn't be a pastor. Look at this guy. Well, now you think you can. All right. So, Hebrews 11, verse 23. Lord have mercy. When he was born, was hidden three months because his parents, because they saw he was a beautiful child. They were not afraid of the king's command. And that's key, by the way. And might I just say a quick note on that? God never condones civil disobedience unless the, the government demands that you sin. If they permit sin, that doesn't mean you blow them up. But the moment they demand that you sin, you have to choose who you're going to follow. And there are countries that do this. Interesting, the one country that hits me the most is China. Because there are many places in China where abortions are demanded. And as I read this text and I look at the text in Exodus 2, there's a part of it, I see my little girl. Because there was a mother who held this child for three months and then after three months had to give her up because she knew that otherwise there would, there would be some problems. The government would come down on her and on this child, and this child would die. And she just left the child in faith, hoping that something good would come about it. And we don't know much, but we know that there was this beautiful little girl that was left in a basket in the civil affairs office at the doorstep. Because it's against the law to leave your child, abandon them even for adoption in China. And I don't want to develop it too much because our girl's nine now, but... I just see this girl, you know, this, this mother leaving this baby going, I just can hope for the best. Had she any idea she'd wind up in our family? Oh, for goodness <laughs> sakes. Well, with that it says, by faith, when we're back in Hebrews 11, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age. By the way, interesting, what age was that that he became? Forty. Came of age at forty. Look at that. How many of you haven't become of age yet? refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now understand, let me just say this. The way that things are run in Egypt 2,000 years, well, 3,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, 
The successor to the Pharaoh throne was given by the daughter of Pharaoh. Because the Egyptians believed, like many in that area, of a queen of heaven, which, by the way, even has made its way into some pretty bizarre splinter groups of, that, that they call Christian, which isn't, there's nothing biblical about it. It's all Babylonian. And, uh, and so they believed that a woman could ordain it. As a matter of fact, that's why a lot of the pharaohs married their sisters, to kind of make sure that they could become the next pharaoh. So you can imagine... This daughter of Pharaoh, and God didn't say a daughter, but the daughter, it's a definite article, the daughter of Pharaoh gets this boy Moses. You'd have to think Moses was the next in line to be Pharaoh. Now, don't miss this, because if you thought that God had called you to deliver the people, and you felt like you were next in line to be prime minister, wouldn't you think, well, that seems like a pretty logical way to to save the country? But see, God wasn't looking at delivering the country through legislature. You can't legalize Christianity per se and demand everybody submit to that law because it has to be a choice. And man, if you think that the way to do this is to go from the top down, unless the top is heaven, you're actually asking for trouble. And it says here, he refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter. Think of what he resigned by saying that. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Listen, he chose to suffer affliction over enjoying, over pleasures. Okay, now which one of you thinks it's a logical, intelligent thing to choose affliction over pleasure? Let's see. Pleasure, suffer. Pleasure, suffer. Is there a debate in anyone's head? But listen... The word for suffer. Yeah, that's a rough word, isn't it? The idea of the word is not ever just, there's no suffer. The word soon means together first. He never suffered alone in this. What happened is he chose basically the idea that there are two groups. And on one side, I'm going to say the other groups over here, so it's not split you guys up. But there's one group over here that's, man, they got it good. It's Egypt and they got it good. But... God said, it's temporary, I'm going to judge this, this has got a shelf life. Did you get that? We saw that in Egypt. This is temporary. By the way, that's good, because this is Egypt. This is temporary. Thank you, Lauren. Purple Egypt. Um, This is Egypt. Oh, and it looks good right now. Matter of fact, they called themselves, it was the first of two groups I'm very aware of, although I'm sure there were others, they called themselves the Eternal Kingdom. Does anyone know the other one that called themselves that? Rome. Anyways, so Egypt here says, we're the eternal kingdom. God says, no, you're not. You're not eternal. I'm eternal. I know. And you're not. You got a shelf life. Well, we got it. And now is it. Now is it. And it's good. And we've got it good. Porsches, Lamborghinis, Bentleys, everybody gets one. Well, yeah, it wouldn't have happened like that had it not been for a Hebrew boy that kept them all from starving to death about 430 years ago. Had it not been for that Jewish boy, they'd all be sitting around eating dirt at best. But no, now things are good. And there's a boy raised up in it. He knows how to talk like that, you know, without opening your mouth. He knows which fork goes for the salad and which fork goes for the rest of the food. And we're American. We use our hands. This digit's for the chicken. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, it's good. You're an American, aren't you? You must be English. You eat with a fork and a knife. All right, anyways. The... um. And so in that, look at it, says, look at he, he made a choice. And on one side, he chose, you could choose this, and you'll be good for a day. But this has got a shelf life. You got that? 
Or you could choose this, and let me just say, you're going to be hated. Get over it. You're going to be, now this group, come and join our group. You're going to be refused. You're going to be neglected. You're going to be the butt of the joke. Family members are going to abandon you. Friends are going to abandon you. Someone as hot and good looking is going to look and say, you used to be cute. You ain't cute anymore. And you, the only thing you changed was the inside they can't see. And all of a sudden, everything changes. They go, come join this group. Why join this group? It doesn't stop with just saying he chose, listen, to suffer together. It doesn't say he chose to suffer. It says he chose to suffer together. It was never like, look it, either be this or I'll stand by myself. Do you see why fellowship is so important? Because without fellowship, you think you're either choosing this or standing by yourself. But Moses didn't choose that. Moses said no to this. Notice what it says. It says he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater treasure than the treasures of Egypt in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. He said, I know that the reward here is an eternal one. The reward here is temporary. And I have a choice of what kingdom I'm going to take. And I'm picking this one. Right now, a little rough, but eternally good. This one, good now, eternally rough. Which one do I want to choose? (laughs) Then it says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured him as seeing him who was invisible. So somehow he kept his eye. God, he saw God in this. And he went, you know, the moment I see God, I see eternity. The moment I see this world, I see it temporary, but I don't see it temporary till I see him first. Without seeing him, this looks like everything. You know what I'm saying? And as a Christian, man, if your eyes are just on this world, it will look like all there is. And you talk to someone who doesn't have God, and they'll tell you this is all there is, because that's what the enemy wants you to believe. And then God shows up. And you're like, whoa, there's a dimension I've been missing. And God says, now look at everything. And then I look at you different. And I look at the world different. And I look at Egypt different. And I go, that's temporary. And he goes, look at Moses said, you know what? Because I like, because I see you. I'll stand with you guys now. Now look at, I'm over here and I want to argue with someone that hasn't seen him. And say, join our club. And all they can think about is now. There should be, and what we could do is we could try to disguise who we really are. And then they get suckered in, and then they think we got a bait and switch. Man, look at what you said. You said this would be a life improvement program. My life got rough now. Let's be honest. Accept Jesus, enjoy life. But look at the difference is everything that Egypt is looking for, we have because what they're looking for is something inside they're trying to get from the outside with money, riches, power, and and fame. We got it from Jesus Christ. We don't need that stuff anymore because we have what they're looking for and they can't get. And so we can handle that persecution because to be honest, it's like, look, I'm never standing alone. I'm going to choose to suffer with you. Now listen, are you going to choose to suffer with your Christians? Or are you going to choose that you think somehow there's this middle ground? There isn't. So if you're not going to choose to take a stand here, whether or no you, whether you know it or not, you're standing here. And I've heard it said, coming from Chicago, if you ain't representing, you perpetrating. I mean, either you're standing among the group or you're standing against it. There, Jesus didn't say either he wasn't for me. Well, they might be against me or they're still making up their mind. You're one side or the other. There's a line drawn and nobody stands on the line. 
It's like dodgeball if you've ever seen that. Try to stand on the line and see what happens. You get hit from both sides. Now, believe it or not, let's look at Exodus 2. Look at all the information you were armed with. Now let's look at it in the narrative. It's time. And if I could title this, let's say, when God's about to do something big. He's promised it. When God's about to do something big, this is the setup. It's not a setback, it's a setup. T1 says, a man from the house of Levi went and took a wife from the daughter of Levi. So they both have Levi genes, we've heard it said. So the woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him for three months. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something going, oh, you're beautiful, I'm going to hide you. No, actually, as a father of daughters, that makes perfect sense. Anyways, the word beautiful, by the way, is tov. It just means good. It's the same word, by the way, that we read in the book of Genesis 1 and 2 when God looked and he saw something was good. And it's interesting you use the word beautiful here. Could you imagine that God could have looked and saw that it was beautiful? He made something and he goes, oh, no, that's beautiful. Same word. But when she could no longer hide him, she took an ark of bulrushes. Of course, this is the second ark in Scripture. First is in Genesis 6. And she daubed it with, and I do, any of you have the old King James? Oh, I love the word, daubed it with slime. <laughs> and we have the word asphalt. Um, there you go. By the way, it's interesting. That seems to be something very uh, indelible. As a matter of fact, we do have one record of that used before. Does anyone know where asphalt was used before this point? Building the Tower of Babel. Genesis 11, it was the mortar they used. So, dubbed it with slime or asphalt and pitch. I bet you might know where pitch was used. Any of you? And the ark. Excellent. Nice job. Genesis 6.14. And then she, listen... She put the child in it, we kind of got that, and laid it in the reeds by the river's bank. Now, for those of you who have seen those beautiful movies, and they are beautiful and romantic, and there's the ox, so there's no rewrite. In it, though, we kind of get the idea she sort of sent the thing sailing, right? And it kind of misses the hippos and the crocodiles and all that, and then just sort of floats its way. But if you really look at what happened here, first of all, you need to recognize that we're by the Red Sea and by the Nile River. The Nile River actually is where we're at. Now, every Egyptian was taught that all life came from that Nile River. So the whole idea of evolution actually came from the, well, from Babylon, but originally came from Genesis, from, sorry, from the Egyptians in regards to that sense, that everything, all life kind of came out of the water. So imagine that's your theology. And what happens is this mom takes this baby and she knows he's a boy. There's no way you, you I mean, three months you might be able to do that, but after that, sooner or later, you're going to have to, um, well, you're going to have to do something about this. No more pink. And by the way, um, with that, they, they take this baby and they, um, she puts him in this ark and then it, she sets it. It says she sets it in the reed. So she sets it in, you know, like those catted, catted lilies or whatever they go. Or what are they called? Cattails or whatever. Foxtails. It reads. Anyway, so they're there in the water, and she sets this thing, and then she... Now, look at We don't read. She's watching. So this is... I want you to think about what this mom's going through. This mom takes this baby, and she has to give it up now because she knows that if she keeps it, she, this baby's going to die. 
every Egyptian is walking around looking at women who look like they've been mothers or a woman and seeing if they have anything and checking to see if it's a boy. She knows that she's a hot ticket that way. And so she's got she's to lay this baby away and just trust that God's going to take care of him. So she puts it in the reeds and then she just walks away. Now, what's going on in the heart of a mother at that moment? I mean, brokenness, faith, because that's what, remember what it said in Hebrews, that she did this in faith? She's like, God, none of this makes sense, but somehow I just got to trust you're going to take care of this. Now, on the Nile River, one thing the Nile River does is rather rife with is crocodiles. However, there's only one inlet that doesn't have crocodiles, and that one inlet is the inlet she's at. And you're probably aware, if you're a pharaoh's daughter, you might pick the crocodile-less spot to take a bath. You know, I mean, there might be some dirt a little rough to get off, but you're not going to use a crocodile to get it. So, so, I mean, I don't know whether this is a setup for mom, but you just think that mom looks and goes, this is the one place where crocodiles don't go. That's where I'm putting my boy. And she walks away, and we don't read that she's there, but sister, sister sticks around. Now, it tells us here, by the way, notice verse 4, and his sister stood afar off not to know what would be done to him. Now, by the way, we're going to learn that that's Miriam. By the way, does anyone know what the word Miriam means? Like Mary? It's bitter. Exodus 15.20, uh, by the way, will tell us that she was a prophetess. So she'll grow to be a prophetess. She'll, by the way, she's a rather assertive girl, and that will get her in some trouble by Numbers 12. She'll be leprous and kicked out of the camp for seven days and before she dies in Numbers 20 in Kadesh. Here, she's just kind of curious, and she's looking. Now, then the daughter of Pharaoh came down. Of all the people to come down at a moment like this, the daughter of Pharaoh does. We don't read it was happening simultaneously. Who knows how long Moses has been sitting there in an ark among the bulrushes, just sitting among the bulrushes. Now, if you think the child might die and you were the mother, wouldn't you get as far away from that boy at this moment as you could so you don't hear him cry? And it says she walked down to the bathe at the river. Walking down means obviously there was a distance between the river and the path. And her maidens walked along the riverside. And why would they do that? They're hunting for things that would be dangerous for, you know, they're, the, they're her bodyguards, right? They're making sure there would be, first of all, they're checking out to make sure there are no, no men, but also, you know, other kinds of crocodiles. So she walked and says, and they walked by there. And when she saw, that's the Pharaoh's daughter, saw the ark among the reeds, she sent her maid to get it. And when she had opened it, which tells us that that ark had a lid on it, she saw the child and behold, the baby wept. Now, there's a Jewish tradition that an angel came down and pinched Moses, so he cried. I don't know that that's the case. That's really cute. Never made it into the movie, but you get the idea. But you know what? Is it really strange that a baby would cry? You know, that's what I have to say. So she had compassion on him. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this. Well, you're aware of this. Exodus is the what book of the Bible? Second, which means we've gone through an entire 50-chapter book, Right? Do you realize this is the first mention in all of Scripture of the word compassion? Do you find that interesting? The word chamal, can you say chamal? means pity, of course, but it also means one other thing. By the way, it is the only time in the entire Torah where we see compassion listed as demonstrated. Doesn't that find that interesting? Of all the other places where we see all the other things, this is the one place where God lists in the entire Torah, the first five books of the Bible, where, where compassion is being demonstrated, and he lists it as such. 
Interesting, because the same word is used, by the way, when we read that the Lord had compassion in Second Chronicles 36.15. And then, by the way, Saul would say in 1 Samuel 23.21 about David, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you had compassion on me. But what I find interesting is the same word that is used when Saul spares Agag, and in 2 Samuel 21.7 when David spares Mephibosheth. In both cases, the word spared is compassion. So David compassioned Mephibosheth. And, and I look at that and I think, hmm, isn't that exactly what the Pharaoh's daughter did? She spared this boy. She could have easily just said, found a Hebrew boy. And again, not to pick on things, all she had to do is pull back the cover. She knows he's a Hebrew boy. But in that, she could just say, we found a Hebrew boy, kill him. But she spares him instead. But then, of all the places to find him, the Nile River, where all life is supposed to come from, you could see how God even allowed that weird teaching long enough for them to go, oh, wow, look at what the Nile has brought. The Nile has brought us a Hebrew baby. This is one of the Hebrew children, she said. And by the way, I look at this and I think, boy, before, when God's about to do something big, here's a guy that could have felt, I mean, if that baby could think, I think of how forsaken it would have felt. And then I think, wow, in Psalm 27.10, don't miss that verse. In Psalm 27.10, it says, even when my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take care of me. Now, for some of you, that's a very, very real verse. Well, here... Moses has found strange favor. I bet you wouldn't have written in your script, probably I will be liked by the people who are trying to kill me, by a leader of the people who are trying to kill me, the one who's responsible for the next leader of the people who are trying to kill me. Then his sister, being as assertive as she is, said to Pharaoh's daughter, which tells us she has to be old enough at least to speak, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew woman that she may nurse the child for you? Now, there's another Hebrew tradition that says that Moses wouldn't take suck from an Egyptian woman. I don't get that because it looks like this whole thing kind of came down at the same time. Oh, but take it whatever way you want. You know that the Pharaoh's daughter says, go. So the maiden went and called the child's mother. Don't miss this. Okay. What do you think mom's doing at this moment? I'm guessing bawling her eyes out. How about you? Or let's just make her a a total hero when she's just trusting in faith and sitting there just waiting for God to do something. Whatever the case is, imagine. And in walks the daughter and says, Mom, um, Pharaoh's daughter wants to see you. Why? Oh, come and see. Really? Oh, come on, really? Would you want to go? Pharaoh's daughter, aren't those the people that are trying to kill those babies? The one you just gave up? you imagine the trouble you could be in in that moment? But Miriam's going, Mom, you need to come and see this. Now think of the faith that a mom would have to, to get. Because what if mom said no? If mom said no, Miriam would have had to find another woman. That was her job, right? But she had the opportunity and she went to Moses' mom, her mom, and said, Mom, come here. Pharaoh's daughter wants to see you. Why? Oh, you're just going to need to come to find out. And let me just say this. Look at There's so much God has for you, but you're going to have to step sometimes to find it. Or you could sit back and just tell us how you're being a person of faith when you know darn well you are not. So Pharaoh's daughter said, go. She went to find the, the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me. Could you imagine that? So you come. She's holding your boy. And this is what she says. Could you nurse this for me? And I'll pay you. 
Okay, who, now which of you, women, ladies, which one of you actually thought she was sitting back going, I'll probably get my boy back today and get paid for, for being a mom to him. Did you get that? I think how, I mean, have you ever thought about how insane that, that whole concept is? How utterly insane. I, I, I look at this and I think, wow, mom gets moolah to be mom to mo. By this, I will, pay, I will give you wages. So the woman, in obedience, took the child and nursed him. Now, by the way, remember, the Hebrew women were commanded to throw their babies in the water. That's what they were commanded to do. Isn't it strange? The woman was technically being obedient. She took her baby, put it in, threw her baby in the water. She actually, anyways, I don't want to talk about stretching the faith or stretching the truth, but you get the idea. So she took him and nursed him. Now, a child is weaned in the Middle East sometimes to ages three or four. Sounds a little gross to us, perhaps, but still to this day, in some places, it's still the case. And I wonder what it was that she... Now, I have to guess two things, but understand, please know, because the Bible doesn't say this is my opinion. Okay, we're aware of that, right? But please listen. I have to believe the two things she told more than anything is, first of all, you need to know you're my son. Which mother in here wouldn't tell their child that? Like, I know that I have you for a very small period of time, but for this period of time, you are my son. And never forget to whom you belong. And when you, because you are my son, you were born into a promise. You're that generation, boy. You're that generation that's going to see this quote-unquote eternal kingdom come down. And I need you to know, and that would be the second thing, is that thing you're going to has a shelf life and it's going to expire. And might I just say, that's the role of every parent. Zivigat, I only have you for a small period of time, but you need to know to whom you belong and you need to know to the kingdom that ultimately you'll step out into here that it's temporary and you need to know you belong to a better kingdom than this one. And if you were not raised in that, do, can I just have the privilege for the moment of being a surrogate parent to say, you are stepping out into a world outside these doors that is temporary and it's not going to last. It has a shelf life. Don't you forget to whom you belong, the one who really created you. And it isn't that kingdom. The one who created you has a kingdom that's eternal. Look around at this world if you want, but the bottom line is it has a shelf life. And what did we read in Hebrews 11? That he chose rather to join this group ultimately when he came of age. Though he was trained in all the wisdom of Egypt, sooner or later he's going to look and say, you're right, this is, and he could have it as good as this world could give it, but it wasn't enough because it was still temporary. Do you get that? Saints, before I go any farther, please, please know that the enemy is good at advertising. And he's good at throwing the flashy, new and improved thing without the price. Any of you get nervous when you go to a restaurant and you flip it open, there's no prices on all the food? Right? It makes you a little nervous. Because there's a party that goes, uh-oh, how much am I going to have to pay for this? Why is it we don't do that when the enemy shows us something? Because he's like, look at this. And we don't look and go, ooh, what that, what's that going to cost me? They're just like, look at this. It might cost me my marriage. It could cost me my ministry. It could cost me a friend. It could cost me my sanity. It could cost me my virtue. It could cost me my self-respect. Oh, yeah, but ooh, it looks good. And, you know, there's got to be a presence. Wait, wait, wait. What's the cost on that? And the Holy Spirit says, too much. 
Two. That's how much it costs. Two. Too much. Well, with that, it says here then that the child, so she took the woman, so here's mom, and she's holding this child. Don't forget. You know who you belong to. Because he's got it, because it says when he went to visit, he went to visit his brothers. You kind of get the idea, even in all this, Moses in the back of his mind knew as a child, never forget those moments. You sat with a child that was that young and said, look at, I trust God on this. I entrusted, I, listen, this, sound, this may sound horrible, but believing that there is an age of accountability, I prayed that if my children would not choose the Lord, that God would kill them before they had a chance to say no to him so that I could spend eternity with them. Because the most important thing to me, my kids, is that, they, that I get to spend eternity with them. I only get them here at best, maybe 18 years, and maybe if they slack a couple more. But in the end of it all, I want eternity with those kids because beyond, beyond the fact that they're my children, they're my brother and sister, they're my sisters, no brothers, they're my sisters in Christ for eternity. I want that. Man, don't forget to whom you belong. So the child grew, verse 10. And she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. And now that second time she has to give this child up. She became her son. And imagine you're four years old and Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, imagine you're handing them over to the woman who's responsible for the entire kingdom. And she goes, you're my boy now. And there's got to be a part of Moses who goes, mm-hmm. I'm going, look, and when she says that, just deal with it because she's going to take care of you well. But could you imagine this is the one boy in all of Egypt they can't kill? Did you see how God worked that out? The, the miracle, the mind of God. So he became her son. She called his name Moshe. We don't even know what the boy's name was. We don't even know if mom gave him a name. All we know is she called him Moshe because the, t- the t- term means drawn out. I drew him out of the water, she says. Now, it came to pass in those days when Moses was grown. How grown is grown? How old is he? Forty. What a young lad he is. Some of you are like, at all. Yeah, you'll get there too if the Lord tarries. Now, that he went out to his brother and he looked at their burdens. And he saw the Egyptian, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers. By the way, the term, by the way, means brothers, not just one of his, fa- one of his general massive family. It may genuinely be that Aaron was getting beat. I don't know. Or that he may have other brothers we don't know about, but one way or another, he sees him being someone that he has a genuine connection with. And it says um, that he looked this way and that way. Now, if you've watched the movies of this, it tends to be almost like an accident. But I've got kids. When a kid looks this way and that way, the next thing that happens is not an accident. Let's just be honest. You know, when Moses looked this way and that way, now the moment you look this way and that way, unless you're crossing the street, something bad's going to happen. He looked this way and that way, and with his bare hands, he took down a taskmaster. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a part of me that would have just, as a slave, that would have went, whoa, nice, I'm in trouble. (laughs) The next day he came, and behold, two Hebrew men were fighting, and he said the one who had did the wrong, which means one of the guys was just being a punk, and he walked right up to this guy, and remember, Moses seems like he's a pretty tough cat, and he says, why are you hitting your brother? Why are you hitting your companion? And the guy turns and says, who made you prince? By the way, the word is shar or sar. Like we even get the term, like shalom means the prince of peace, same word, prince. And judge over us. You want to kill me like you did the, you kill the Egyptian? Man, talk about cheeky. This guy just tore apart a taskmaster yesterday and you want to get cheeky with this guy today? Yep, apparently so. Moses feared and he said, oh, this, surely this thing is known. 
When Pharaoh heard this matter, he sought to kill Moses. But there's a strange thing. Remember how it said by faith he didn't fear? And I wonder if the issue wasn't that he was afraid of Pharaoh, but he was concerned about what the people of Israel thought of him. And by the way, could I just say, well, God's about to do something big. You might have done a couple things in the very best intentions, intentions that were actually rather stupid. You know, the Lord actually never radically criticizes something you do with the best intentions. He'll correct it. But he isn't just going to go, you idiot. Because he'd rather you try something with the best intention than you do nothing because you think you do it wrong. And look, at, don't ever think for a moment God's blessed by your Im- immovability. Because somehow you're like the underground man by Dostoevsky where you're like, well, I don't want to do anything wrong, so I'm just going to sit here. And God goes, by sitting there, you're doing something wrong. Be available. Just be available. He knows how to communicate with you. So he sought to kill him. Moses fled from the face of Pharaoh and went to the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. And notice we're near the end of this. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought, where in the world is Midian? Any of you ever thought that? All we just know, it must be the wilderness, right? That's all we know? Well, the, the traditional scholarly approach to it, which, by the way, never makes it right, but, um, but just for what it's worth. Now, and it's really, can, let me go to the other map. Could you do that, Lauren, for a moment? You know, because you're probably aware of it. Um, 2,500 years ago, or 3,500 years ago, everything was purple. Perhaps you're aware of that. Um, and it's probably our cable because it's just shooting out purple. But the um, area of, is, of Egypt, is this the other one? My gosh, that looks a lot like the last one. Okay, there we go. Um, the area of Egypt, by the way, is all the way this way. And ironically, by the way, lower Egypt is here, higher Egypt is up here. Yeah, that just shows you how backwards they were. But in all of that, this right here is the Red Sea. That notice is going peace. Right here, right? Okay. Um, Israel to this day, by the way, comes down and tips down right at the tip of the Red Sea. That area is called Elat, by the way. Been there. It's like swimming in a fish tank if you ever go. That's pretty radically cool. Anyways, so that's that area here. Now, they're over here, by the way, because that's the area. Remember, and I want to remind you, they were given the very best land. So not only have they multiplied like rabbits or beyond, which, by the way, God promised, remember, in Genesis, but they're also in the best land of Egypt. Now, with all of that, Moses is going to flee that land, and he's going to travel roughly, well, roughly about 2,000 kilometers all the way over. And interestingly enough, he has to flee all that land, and he has to come over this way. And most scholars believe that this is the land here in Saudi Arabia of Midian. Now, the reason I say that's, that I find the most fascinating is, is that, well, where shepherds tend to go, you're probably aware of this, is places where there are water and wells, because otherwise you have dead sheep, and what good is that? But the area here is fairly well watered. And by the way, this right here, right down in this area here, is the traditional site for the crossing of the Red Sea. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, is that it could very well be that Moses actually saw those shores in those 40 years before he actually fled from Pharaoh. Anyway, it's just something to consider, because this, by the way, here is the Sinai Peninsula, for what it's worth. So get the idea, Moses flees roughly 2,000 kilometers, because, and, but by the way, he's still very Egyptian. He's been Egyptian for roughly 36, 37, 38 years. Are you with me on that? And with that, then he flees. Now notice what it says. Now God is setting this up. Now, last few things it says here. Now the priest, of, you know, so here he is, he sat down by a well. Now what would you feel like? Now, God's about to do something big. We know that as the reader. Moses doesn't know that at this moment, but Moses is that generation God's going to use to transform and just take this down and bring them back to where they belong. Are you with me on that? 
Now, this is the generation God's going to get them out of Egypt and take down Egypt to do it. But at this moment, it doesn't look like it. At this moment, the guy's in the middle of nowhere. He, we don't believe he's ever been there before. And he's just kind of disheveled. And, he's just sort of, and he just feels like, what in the world am I doing? And God's about to do something big. But you wouldn't see it. And the reason I say that is maybe that's where you're at at this moment. You're like, what in the world am I doing? I don't even know where I'm at. I don't really know where I'm going. All I know at this moment is that God has got some promises that seem somewhat distant in my mind. They're like a lullaby from 38 years ago, 39 years ago. And here I am now. I don't even know what in the world I'm doing. And God's like, I'm just, God's rolling up his sleeves. But you can't see that. And if it weren't for faith at a moment like this, you just go, fine, I'll just die here next to the well. And God goes, well, 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 you're about to meet your lady. You know what? I don't know if you recognize this throughout Scripture. People tend to, guys tend to meet their girls by the wells. We've already seen it a couple of times in Genesis. You know, anyways, which, by the way, you know, do you know what the word well is, by the way, in Hebrew? I don't know if you find it. It's the word beer. Now, I'm not in any way encouraging that, but it seems like that's the place where people meet today. But it's not the place God ordained. I think the enemy substituted. Well, let me show you. You can all meet at the well drinks. You know, that's not what God intended. So he sits down by a well. Now, what kind of mood are you in at this moment? Are you feeling like, yeah, this is a pretty good day. I just fled for my life. I've ran a couple thousand kilometers. Things are really good. I've been running through dirt and dust and nastiness for 2,000 kilometers. I finally find a well. That's a good place. Maybe I'll get some water before I die in this miserable state. And then some chicks show up. Of course, that's the effort. Forgive me. There's some ladies that show up. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Now, this priest, by the way, has got three names. How many guys in Scripture have three names? But I love the name God gives them here. It says, seven daughters, and they came to draw water, and they filled the trough of water with their father's flock. Seems like a pretty routine thing. Then the shepherds came and drove them away. By the way, I get from this why in Genesis 46, 34, every shepherd's an abomination to Egyptians. Because so these girls are going, and they draw all the water for their sheep, and then the shepherds come and chase them away so they could actually give it to theirs instead. Pretty nasty, bully thing to do, right? Now, I don't know how many there are, but one thing I'm confident that there's more than one. Because it's plural. Well, with that it says, then notice this, my man, but Moses stood up and helped them and watered their flock. One guy takes on the shepherds and says, and then the Egyptian, and people go, don't mess with that guy, he's crazy, or whatever. And they back off, and he waters all of them. And then it says, and then they came to Ruel. Could you say, Ruel? Try it, no, try it, look at this, Ruel. Come on, this is Hebrew, Ruel. Ru, by the way, like short for Ruth, means Friend. El, short for Elohim, means God. This guy's name is Friend of God? What an awesome name. He also gets named Jethro, which by the way means His Excellence in Excellence 3, 4, and 18. And then Hobab, as if that as if Jethro wasn't enough from the deep south. Hobab, which by the way means Cherished. So the guy's names are Friend of God, His Excellence, and Cherished. I, I dig that. I mean, if that's why I'd have to be called Jethro, at least I'd know what it meant. Well, I, although I'd go with Ruel in a heartbeat. So, so it says, when they came to their dad, he said, well, how was it you came back so soon? Do you get an idea? That means this is a daily routine. They go, they get the water, the, the shepherds drive them away. When the shepherds finally leave with their flocks, then they go and get water again. 
You know, it's sort of like that thing in sort of somewhere in late elementary, sort of early secondary school where the bully comes, eats your lunch, and then you save a little bit so you can actually still get a milk when you're done. Well, and <laughs> So they come back early, and Dwayne's like, whoa, this is strange. You, you're back early today, the time you should be every day. <clears throat> I said, what happened? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us from the hand of the shepherds. And he drew enough water for us in the flock. Now, this is a dad of seven daughters. And he says, you just ran into a man. You better go get him here. So he says, we set the doors. Well, where is he? Sorry, took a while for some of you. huh? Why is it that you left this guy? Call him that he may eat bread with us. Girls, there's a man. And he's Egyptian. So Moses was content to live with the man. Now remember, at this moment, does Moses have any life? He's fled everything he's known. Listen, he's left everything he's known. And he doesn't even know where in the world he is. And someone says, I've got seven daughters. Why don't you come live with me? And you'd think, things are looking up. (laughs) It says then, sorry, Moses was content to live with him. And this man, friend of God, gave him Zipporah, which by the way means little bird, his daughter to Moses. He's like, of my seven, I'm going to give you this one. And he says, and she bore him a son. And and they called his name, or he called his name Gershom. Could you say Gershom? Gershom, by the way, means refugee, stranger in the land. And he's called a Hebrew, which means one from beyond or not from around here. So if you said Gershom, the Hebrew, you'd say, refugee, not from around here. Nothing about that should tell you that he belongs there. Get the idea? By the way, it's interesting. Do you know what the term Palestinian means? It means foreigner. So you have a group called foreigners arguing with a group of people called not from around here over a land. And if it wasn't for the living God, who has a right to it? They're both not from around there. Well, there you go. So he says, I've been a stranger in a foreign land which, by the way, means that Moses doesn't plan to stay there forever. Now what happened in the process of time, the king of Egypt died and the children groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. Last thing, and we pray, friends. Look at the four things in verses 24 and 25. First, God heard their groaning. The word is Shema, which, by the way, doesn't mean God overheard. It means he chose to listen with intent. Remember, that's like saying the Shema. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Heart, soul, and strength. And God remembered. The word remembered, by the way, for what it's worth, the word sekor means to, to mark. So he specifically marked. Now he's got something on his agenda. His, his, he's already had it, but now he's starting to get ready for it. His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember, that covenant is to get him out of that land and take down the, judge, the people, judge the people who are making them slaves. And then he looked upon. And the word looked upon, by the way, is what ra'a. Could you say ra'a? That means to discern or to start engaging experience. And then God acknowledged, and the word acknowledges the word yada. And the word yada to this day means no. Like you say, anelo yada, which means I don't know. Good thing to know in, in Israel if somebody asks you a question, anelo yada, I don't know. Or yodea if you're a guy. So listen, this is what God did. God purposely listened to their cries or their sighs. God marked something. In other words, look at it this way. God looked at you and he saw you sighing, and he looked at his calendar and he went, that day. That's the idea of marking something, right? And then God started to engage it. And then he engaged the people. So God, in other words, he engaged it where before he engaged the people? I'd have to say he started engaging heaven first. He's been waiting and he knows. 
But you imagine it's like God has a board meeting with his angels and he says, now it's time. You guys ready? You guys ready for this? We're going to start taking this thing down. We're going to take it down with the least likely candidate because I love picking the underdog. Which one of you are the underdog? Because that means you qualify more than probably those of us who think we aren't, that think we're the overdog. And look at this, and God goes, I'm looking for somebody. People go, no, not him. You know, what do we know about the guy at this point? He's going to be 83 when he stands before him. How much of an underdog is that? He's going to go up and down a mountain at 83. Man, nice guy. Oh, that I would be that right at that age. If God's the Lord, Terry. Look in. I genuinely, genuinely believe God's about to do something really big in this country. It doesn't have to be with Calvary Chapel, and it doesn't have to be with me, because I don't really care about that. I want people saved here. I don't want the saved built up. But part of that is cleansing his people and getting them back to the simple truth of his word, the gospel of the power of salvation, by the way, to anyone who believes, trusting in his Holy Spirit to actually convict people instead of our ability to argue and to become the evidence more than the debater and arguer. And in this room, God is right now preparing evidence for the courts of human hearts right now out there. And as we have the moment in the locker room, I just want to pray with you and with me, and regard or for me, in the sense that if God is about to do that, maybe you're in one of these positions. You feel like, man, I don't know what I'm doing right now. I don't know where I'm going or whatever. Well, good, you qualify. You're right in this, aren't you? Maybe you're in a place where you felt abandoned. Maybe you're in a kind of place where you feel like you're so overwhelmed or maybe for the moment you're just kind of... But see, can I just say, it all starts with making a simple choice. First of all, do you want to be there or do you want to be here? Because if you're going to pick here, deliverers don't raise up from here. Deliverers raise up to go there. Because if you're still here, you're still trying to figure out who you are and how good you can be amidst this, this jungle instead of going out and seeing how you can bring people out of it. Can I just say, Christian, you and I'm speaking to me too here. Have you really made that choice? Now look at over 22 years ago, I said yes to that beautiful woman in the back. Over 22 years ago. Oh, I said yes a long time before that I just publicly acknowledged it with an I do. But in that I do, I knew that when I said I do, what I said was I do commit to saying I do for the rest of my life. It wasn't like I said I do once, that's good enough, isn't that good enough? Because every day you wake up with that choice. I mean, you're going to wear the ring either way, but do you want to live married or not today? Does that make sense? When did you say? I'm not talking about, don't tell me you were always been a Christian. Sooner or later, you've got to stand at the altar and say yes. When you stand, it's like saying, I've always been married. Okay, good with that. But one day you said, I do, where you publicly said, I do commit to saying, I do to that king for the rest of my life, my king for the rest of my life. And when I do, I know part of that is, I'm going to stand with you, not with that. Now, that doesn't say that you don't go there. It's saying when you do go there, remember, you're not a citizen of this. So go here and make a difference here and say, who wants out with me? But remember, I can't talk you out by saying, look it, I've got a better life. I'm going to be persecuted. I'm going to be, people are going to, I should expect the, you know, everybody to go rife and just kind of get, get, you know, all kinds of wonky on me about that. But if I could show you him, you'd see why this is all worth it. Because the moment I get my eyes on him, I see how temporary this is and it all makes sense. Now, if you've never said, if you've never had that moment where you've said, I do, I'd love the privilege of giving you that opportunity right now. But to say I do, what you're saying is, 
I do accept the gift of Jesus Christ, his payment for me on the cross, his resurrection to be the architect of my reinvention, to be the Lord of my life. But I say I do. I do agree to say I do to your will for the rest of my life. Oh, there'll be parts of me that will want to fight you, but I'm not going to fight you anymore. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text. And I thank you for the privilege and the honor that it is to come before you and to sing your praises and to love you and to thank you for all your goodness. But I confess to you, Lord, this world here is so good at its advertising and it gets so shiny and it gets so... Well, the menu looks real pretty, but but there are no prices listed. Because if I really saw the prices, I wouldn't want it. Nothing is worth the price that's paid for these things. And I just want to pray, Lord, today for my brothers and sisters and myself, that we would, take the, we would realize we have to stand together to make this choice, but that we would, not, that we would choose to suffer affliction with our brothers and sisters than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. So Lord, make us the kind of fellowship where we can find solace and comfort, keeping our eyes on the one who shows us eternity so that it makes sense. And in that, Lord, I just pray you give us the backbone. The world doesn't need any more Christian jellyfish. We need to have a spine. God, give us, please, the courage to be the men and women you call us to be. And Lord, we want our faith to be the kind, Lord, that whatever we have to hand over, we can trust you're going to handle it. And so, Lord, I just pray right now that you would just take our hearts and shape them into ones that change this world. Lord, I know you're rolling up your sleeves right now. And as you are, you're looking for those that have made that choice. And maybe for those, Lord, right now who feel like they're having their own Midian experience. The word Midian even means to contend, to brawl. And inside there is this battle being fought. They're just trying to figure out who they are or what they would Show them first and foremost who they are in you. And then in that, Lord, just show them how you are about to do something beautiful because you have given us precious promises that we hold upon that should, that should inspire us to be holy. And so, Lord, I just commit my brothers and sisters to you and myself. Please, God, make us world changers. Lord, we are underdogs. We have nothing to offer but our surrender. But God, you are all we need and you are all this world needs. And I know that when the church of this country, the church of the UK, the church of England finally concludes that you are everything that this world needs, that this church is going to explode on this country like it should. So God, I just commit that to you right now. Lord, as my brothers and sisters and myself, please... Shape us into the soldiers that you call us to be. And right now, if you've never said yes to Jesus, maybe you say, well, you know, I've just kind of always been sort of a believer. Well, today you could say at least, I know there was a day that I stood up and said, I do. I want to pray a prayer. And at the end of it all, I ask you to say, I do. And amen. What you're saying is, look at God, I, I do. I do commit to this. I do say yes, not to this, but to you. And here it is. Jesus, I I come to you as a sinner. And in that sin, Lord, I know I'd be guilty, but you and your infinite love for me love me so much 
that you sent your son to die for me on the cross to pay for all my wrong so that I don't have to earn my way into you. You offer it me to offer that to me as a gift. So I say yes to you, Jesus. Yes to your gift at the cross. Yes to your resurrection. I do say yes to your love, to your forgiveness, to your purity, and to your plan for my life. Do something huge in and around me, even if it doesn't look huge to others. I know that if you do it, it's huge to you. And I'm reminded, God, that when you're doing something big, the most important thing to you was people like me. So I know nothing could be huge without people. But I know you want to affect this country. I know you want to infect this country in the very best of ways. So transform this country and use me to do so. I'm surrendering myself to you now. Lord God, you say, who will have me? And I say, I do. In Jesus' name, if you agree, say, I do. Amen.